Was that the Muppets originally? Did they make that up? Did the Muppets write that? If so, kudos. It's a hell of a song. We all love to listen to it. We all love to hum it sometimes. It's fun for the whole family. You don't even have the uh, lyrics to deal with. International. Feeling good, guys. I feel like I've got... I'm getting... I'm heading towards being able to articulate something uh, on paper soon. Just going to put that out there because I'm feeling pretty confident. I'll be able to put something together soon in a writing form. Uh, I'm just excited about it, so I just wanted to put that out there as a, as a more than anything as a as a marker, so that I don't like get lazy on it. Because I feel like I could actually uh, I could get myself across anyway. That's all I can really ask. Nothing more than that seems uh, realistic. Uh, Man, uh, I've been thinking about uh, that O'Bungler, man. Thinking about that O'Bungler. That O'Bungler, he is as narcissistic as Trump is. He is, a, the, it's, a mirror. it's amazing. Liberals and conservatives have now created like Jungian archetypes around their collective behaviors in the form of this figure of the United States president. And they have polarized around these things. And like Donald Trump is the malignant, narcissistic heart of American reactionary ideology, which is, of course, just superstructural aesthetic uh, uh, ornament to the bipartisan neoliberal economic order that is undergirding all of it and completely depends and, it, and is the two are totally meshed in and are insufferable from and cannot be removed from. Uh, and then the Democratic id, the Democratic narcissist, the Democrat who thinks he's a progressive because he wants what's best for everybody, which is really just what he imagines is best for him personally, in every sense of what I mean personally, uh, as in personal pleasure, personal, uh, like, uh, narcissistic, narcissistic self-conception. And he is a narcissist in the way that liberals are. And these guys both made incredibly improbable runs at the White House when you think about it. Now, unless you want to believe the idea that, uh, that Obama was like a CIA mark project as a kid and they're like, we're going to make him president someday. I mean, maybe he was CIA. Maybe his mom was. Like, her, her postings are very suspicious. And like anybody, especially at that period in the Cold War, involved in any kind of international academic outreach, they had an involvement with the CIA. But that cuts both ways, really. Because it's like, well, everybody had their involvement. But that also means that these organizations, anyone involved in them, is, has an implicit association with something that they might not specifically have because not everybody in all these orgs, like even USAID is CIA, I'm sorry. Like they don't, at least they don't know they are. Whatever, you know, like they're not agents. They're bureaucrats. And they think that they have, that their job is real. That's true in every one of these organizations. But anyway, whatever, one way or the other, if you take him for serious as he wasn't a plant, which I think is silly, he got to where he was from single motherhood in Hawaii and, and, and uh, you know, being one of the Chum gang through just a single-minded pursuit of his narcissistic 
self, like of, of, of feeding the furnace of his ego. And what he wanted, because of, his, because of the specifics of his uh, background, the specifics of his life experience, what that meant to him was approval from the establishment. Approval and absorption and uh, ratification by a status quo that he was awed by and terrified of, even if he recognized its evil. And so he pursued it with a mad gusto, a life force that makes him, you know, in his own way a genius, this Trump is. And that led him towards absorbing every status, ever, because since the end, since, so as a young man, powered by this desire, where do you go? Where do you go to make it in the world? You go to college. And when he went to college, he absorbed college. He absorbed it like fucking Galactus absorbing a planet. At like a molecular level, he absorbed it. Like it's mores, it's things. Because he was like, oh, this is how you get ahead. These are the values you hold to get ahead. This is the operating system that you move from to get ahead. And then he, embodying them, moved forward. And of course, over time, that stands in for what being a progressive means because those are the people who are progressives. Not a, not, they're not all sociopaths and, and narcissistic maniacs like Obama. They have souls, but they also have false consciousness. And so they adhere to him because they have like an emotional connection that is not substantiated by like his real, con the, his real position in the, in the, in the global uh, exploitosphere. But him at the center, he's fine because he knows real power is always elsewhere. He is happy to just circulate amongst power like a ghost. I've, tr Trump is ta we, I've talked about how Trump acts like he's watching himself be president and he isn't president. Same thing with Obama. He just didn't do it publicly. He did it through like this, uh, this, this literary style. Trump does it 140 characters at a time. Trump, uh, Obama does it with these fucking 700-page doorstops. It's, it's just because he's trying to impress someone. He's trying to fucking impress someone. And that is the essence of the democratic ideology as it exists. It suffuses everyone who went to college and came out with a political idea, whatever it is. Not everyone holds it the same. Not everyone is Obama, for God's sakes. And there are people of goodwill, a part of that. Hell, I'm part of it. So you can't be completely tainted. If you are, then stop listening to me completely. And sure, maybe you, you think that's the case, fine. But let me just try to express this for the love of God. Uh, and so their values are Obama, embodied by Obama's life, and now by the politics that he created in, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the void of the post-2008 uh, crisis when we vaporized the economy again and had to refound re it. And, and we've created just this quantum economy of pure cash injection, of pure liquidity, adhering to formations of capital that already exist in order essentially to, to just exchange for its own sake, to pass briefcases back and forth at the end of the global production line. That's what they're there for. He, the president doesn't have anything to do with that. So it becomes, how do you approach the presidency? Just as for us, held hostage in this machine we don't feel like we can do anything about, how do we come to terms with this world we're in? And for Obama, it is by, you know, being the most he that he can be, like we all are trying to do. And that's how, and that was his presidency, is it created this identity that was creating its antithesis in the non-college uh, 
I wouldn't say not college educated because a lot of them are college educated, not college housebroken people. The people who, the majority of them, in the, certainly in 2016, less so in 2020, but in 2016, his base was people who went to college, were in that middle strata, but instead of absorbing college like Obama did, rejecting it. At some level, not completely. Not completely. Like all these Republicans who voted against Trump this time, they adhere to the stuff at the base about the norms meaning stuff and democracy being a real thing and that one man would vote. Like they do believe that stuff. They just st they stop believing once you get higher than that to like, well, racism is real and there's responsibility and, you know, Rawlsian stuff. No. Things are the way they are. There's nothing you can really do about it. Trying to change things only makes them worse. You just have to try to succeed within that rubric. And that's the undergirding logic of, of the whole thing. And that's what you learn. But then if you're, if you're a liberal, if you have a certain sensibility, you learn on top of that, well, that can't change, but we can make things more equitable against race and against uh, racial oppression and against gender uh, oppression and against class oppression, which is another form of oppression. And they get, that gets you to liberalism. That's, a bunch, that's like a tower babble that ends with Obama's head on the top. Now, Trumpism, emerging out of just like the, the cultural uh, you know, organization opposed to the thesis that Obama presented in the, in the collapse of the Bush administration and the collapse of the economy in 2008, Obama arose as this new thesis in American politics. And liberals and Democrats and, and socialists, because how many people who were of age at the time who are now socialists who hate Obama weren't in favor of voting for him at the time when he appeared. I was for Obungler. I didn't see through his lies. I, wasn't a, I was not a child either. I was of voting age. There are a lot of people who would be like, how'd you get suckered by Obama? It's like, well, you had to be there because you had to be there. You had to have absorbed like the, the psychic reality. Uh, so yeah, I was an Obungler. We all thought there was something there. Because what else was there? There was no working class response. Working class had been demobilized from a social point of view, and the working class was scattered to the winds. It could not cohere in a moment of crisis. All that cohered was things that could be expressed in culture. And that means college kids created this guy Obama out of the sand like a gin, and then he captured this whole demographic slice. And then Obama, over the course of four years, he created an antithesis, this, new, this, this thing that started among the people who went through the machine and said, okay, yeah, 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 liberal democracy, whatever, uh, uh, whatever keeps the money flowing, but no, fuck all the rest of that stuff and fuck your feelings. And they organized around Trump. And that created a eventual disdain for all the institutions that the, that the, uh, that the, the college in, uh, absorbs, including the ones that are actually important structurally. But over time, because it's all just, it's all just a performance, remember this is politics, it's theater, it just gets sharper and more intense. And by 2016, uh, just like Obama emerged almost out of nowhere to, to, to smite Hillary and against long odds, Trump did likewise to embody this new antithesis, which takes all the values that you learn past the basic stuff about this is how the money works. Capitalism is bedrock. Capitalism is immovable. The stuff that's on top of that that's negotiable because that's the stuff you need to get a job and prosper, which is why people actually go to college. As aggregates, and not completely, I mean, if you talk why people go to college, the motivator is money. That's the through line of everyone who goes. All the other stuff is built on top of that and is, in fact, 
college is kind of advertising itself to people. It's not just about money. It's about this other stuff, too. That's like saying you got new features on the fucking uh, latest 4x4. And so the college-educated uh, uh, Republican reactionary still wants to make that money, still has absorbed that much. But the rest of this, even though it might be like the way that you negotiate changing demographic realities and the, and the way that capitalism atomizes social bonds and has to replace them with just more market, which means you have to give up prejudices of all social kinds. You have to give them up in exchange for money or market participation, market replacing life, market, market decisions replacing individual decisions, turning you into just a circuit, a yes-no circuit. And uh, what you see, I think, with Biden getting the nomination, Biden got the nomination, sort of this, I mean, people talk about, I've talked about how Trump is like Louis III, uh, Napoleon, Louis Napoleon, or I'm sorry, talk about how uh, Trump is like Napoleon III, and like, you know, he's this comic opera uh, presence who just bundles into history because of the inability of, like, the ruling class to create a politics that can facilitate their disagreements. Uh, but it's really Biden. Because what happens with Biden is you see in the political sphere, this coalition of people, some of them class conscious in the sense that they are aware that there's capitalism and they like it that way, the upper middle class, the, stri the successful strivers. And then at the bottom end, the people who think, no, fuck that stuff too. We do need a revolution, but are still operating from a lot of the other assumptions that they got in college that dilute their ability to organize effectively and make them kind of hostage to the Democratic Party. Uh, the people who would say, say when Bernie Sanders shows up, adhere to him. And then what the, the, what the, what the, uh, what the uh, 20, 2020 primary was, was a civil war, basically, uh, within this emergent, you know, young, diverse, college-educated demo. The one that put Obama in power and then kind of lost interest, especially, and didn't really show up for Hillary. Uh, but then freaked out because Trump won. And there was a split. You had among the successful, successful, which is like people under the age of 45 who have their own home. It's Pete or uh, maybe Klobuchar uh, or Cory Booker or something. That's not a base. You're not going to win with that. Then you had, but you can get a good, you know, but then, so basically the rest of it is renters under 45. And then Bernie and Warren kind of split them along. How are you doing otherwise? Are you renting, but you have a decent gig? Are you renting, but you feel like you're participating in the creative economy in a way that is remunerative to you, both spiritually and economically? Are you secure in a way? And do you sense security? And do you want to maintain security? Then you're fucking Warren. If you went through that whole rigmarole, but found yourself uh, in a declension, in a social declension, or uh, which is this, and 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 like even uh, treading water is going downward with debt. Uh, uh, expanding the way it is. Um, and they went for, they went for uh, Bernie. But all the time, the rest of the, of the voters, the non-college, they're just sitting here. Once the first round went and it was clear that all of the Weller off were not going to be able to stave off the lower off, they uh, freaking panicked. But 
What saved them is those early results in South Carolina that said this other hunk is all for Biden because it has nothing to do with this whole argument you guys are having. All the argument, Bernie versus Warren on progressivism, racism, and like how do we, do, like uh, 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 um, reparations and Medicare for all, even, even like those things, they are all framed as, I think, outside of the college bubble as just more politics talk. Uh, all of these things are, um, they're just passing through like gamma radiation. And the only thing that's left is this guy who was there when Obama was in. And so why wouldn't you go with that? You could get rid, rid of Trump. Why wouldn't you want to get rid of Trump? This is all rational. Because all this stuff that's happening is mostly delusional. It's tapping around the fact that the Democratic Party cannot be moved. And I will say that among those people, I think the Bernie people, if things had gone differently, could have maybe assembled a coalition to push over the Coke machine. But as it was, if you don't think Bernie can win and you're, and you're not in that, if you're observing that civil war, there's nothing to make you go in for him and not go for the safe hand, which is what they did. And as soon as that happened, you saw the big flight. First happened in South Carolina, the, the, the richest, the, the wellest off olds, the ones who are class, the most class conscious because they, they live class. They're for Biden. Of course they are. And they see Bernie as a, uh, and a lot of them are Republicans. They don't even vote Democrat. That's how conservative they are. They see Bernie might win. What's the safe hand to stop that? It's Biden. And everybody played the safe hand at once. And then once that happened, it snapped the, it, the sna it broke the fantasy. It broke the fantasy politics that were pervading within the bubble that I was part of. I was in the fantasy. I was in Sorcel. It broke that. I was like, oh shit, this race isn't what we thought it was at all. These coalitions aren't what they, we thought they were at all. But Bernie was basically fucked at that point. Everybody else, the question was, how are they going to make a deal? Everybody had a price. And we'll see how well they negotiated. Like, I think if, if Mayor Pete only gets like Veterans Affairs, I think he didn't do a very good job. I think he had a stronger hand than that. And maybe he's just getting cocky because he's so young. He thinks he can just like go, just like start. I don't know. I think he's fucking up. Or he's, uh, he's dumber than uh, everyone, than he thinks he is, which obviously I highly entertain that no notion. Uh, you know, I don't, we'll see what the club will get. She doesn't seem like a very negotiator. She, she's like one of those classic people. The reason she beats up her underlings is because she kisses ass everyone who's uh, more powerful than her. Like, that's why they do that, because they have to express their frustration somewhere, but they're cowardly kiss asses, literally. So she's going to take what they give her, I, and she probably already did. And Warren, of course, is either a sucker or, uh, or a, a, a chump. No, that's, I guess, the same thing. I mean, just she's either cynical and just got outplayed, or she's, uh, she's totally uh, earnest and is just a fucking moron. And then that, that, that like, it's like they called a truce and then they subsumed under Biden the same way that the fractious bourgeois under, uh, uh, after the 48 revolution in France were eventually subsumed by the figure of, Louis Napo of Napoleon III because they couldn't fucking otherwise agree. Fucking Orleanists and legitimists and the fucking uh, Bonapartists. He was the one who was able to just cut the fuck. And, oh, and the constitutional Republicans and the radicals and, and the socialists. Absorbed it like the fucking plot. Uh, and that, and of course, you might say, well, this is this proved that, like, 
you know, these people, these are all the work, these are uh, the new ruling class. No, these are not real class categories. These are essentially, uh, these are skins you put on in the virtual reality battle drum of politics. They are your team jerseys when you go play uh, like paintball. That's what they are. And then you go and vote and those votes are cast and those are real elections that have real consequences, but all the real consequences are not discussed. The ornamental stuff is what we actually respond to, like fucking Pavlov's dogs, because it's all the only voice we can hear. And so now you've got this Democratic coalition, the future of the Democratic Party, unable to resolve its own contradictions because Bernie, because of fucking Bernie's, because of how bad things are, basically, could not be absorbed, could not absorb Bernie. Like a fucking, uh, like, uh, like a piece of grit in a fucking oyster that turns into a pearl or whatever. It was, there was some pearls in there, damn it. Damn it. And that means that, and this must be stressed, there is a reverse of this politics occurring in the Republican Party at the exact same time. Because there's a lot of these college-educated Republicans who come out, and they still think that they are pursuing some version of the good that isn't being a profit-maximizing goblin, that is not being an instrument of capitalism. They have a sense that they are being alienated. They have that same combination of material pain and guilt that has to be put somewhere that is inculcated by the college experience, and they have to express it somewhere. And they find enemies and they want to fight them. And as conditions get worse, the enemies are harder and harder to mistake. It is the Leviathan of capitalism. That's why we see this acceleration of anti-Semitism, because you've got to find an alternative explanation, because you're on the right. Remember, you still say that the hierarchy is right, and I believe in my position in it, and I will defend it. That's, you're still observing that. So everything else flows from that. And so you have to get into more and more like contortions to imagine that you're like defending like real culture against an encroaching global homo like uh, uh, United Nations shit like this is any different than the fucking John Birch Society it's the exact same argument for 1954 but you have to do that to find purchase to find a reason to care about this stuff because you know everything good even at your point in the fucking hierarchy is going away because you probably are a renter too and if you're not you know your kids are and you're aware of precarity, except at the very top where you're just making the bet of, oh, yeah, the people who give me money, give me more money. And, man, the people I see talking about how, like, Donald Trump was an a anti-war president, you respond to that. You say, he's bombed the hell out of everybody. He escalated bombs over everybody. Uh, he's done more drone strikes in uh, one term than Obama and Bush did. And their response is, yeah, but what have, what have Hillary done? Or what do you think Biden's going to do? In this moment, that is indistinguishable from a liberal defending Obama's drone policy because what would have McCain done? The exact same ideological conditioning tool. And it operates in the same way, which means all that, all that righteous, like socially generated right wing a populist energy that people like to jack themselves off exists like this sleeping leviathan of white working class solidarity. When it gets expressed politically, it gets expressed as this stupid, uh, petty bullshit uh, uh, fighting about who to blame for what's wrong. And it'll never get to capitalism because it is entertainment. Because everybody involved has made the decision 
that even though they do believe, they say they believe in things and they say they have ideology and they say they're trying to fight for a better future. Remember, right-wingers think this too. They just have a different idea of what it is. They, they, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. I just. It's all a farago. People will choose continuing to pleasure themselves through observing and participating in the social media spectacle of politics as consumer and creator than do anything that sacrifices their personal pleasure. And I include myself in this. And that is why anything that's going to come and break up this horrifying stalemate, this awful political situation where we have detached politics from the material completely and absorbed it like we have absorbed the internet as a, as a replacement for real life and real activity, uh, is going to come from outside of it. And I've obviously very, you know, uh, facilely you could say that means log off. And it's like, yes, duh. Replace time online with time doing almost anything else I can imagine. Just pure, that's clean your room level basic, but it's fucking, I can't think of any other word for it. That is, time online is inherently alienated and you have to get that back. You have to get that, that, that experience of being a place because you want to. Not because it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a distraction from something. Not because it's palliative. Doing something because you want to be doing it. And it's never being online. And then it's going to be people infusing their relationships with real, like, love in a way that makes it so that they can't get the pleasure they used to get out of this because they feel too much what's going on because our own pain can always be perspective because we can pr put it in perspective of what we could lose even if things get worse for us at every point of the ladder even if we're exploited more or, or, or alienated more and remember the rich are alienated more too in this spiritual sense it's just that they express their alienation solely through sadism and ostentatious spectacles of waste because that's all they have they, they have all the guilt. They have none of the pain. So they have to channel it somewhere else. It's the people in the middle who are fucking caught. And the only way to break out of that is to detach your libidinal package of desires, which are mostly created by capitalism, like as in root and branch, like your pituitary development is like wrapped around a spectacle, a capitalist spectacle, like you've turned into a, you're turned into a Cronenberg creature before you're even, you even get hair on your balls. And then you're, you, and then that to you is the sum total of good. Like we extrapolate all of our abstract ideas about what the best is, what, what, what's good, what's bad, what love is, what does that even mean? We get them from our own experience of what those things mean. And they are alienated even from ourselves. And only by unalienating time can we unalienate our relationships. 
and I'm not saying completely, I'm saying into a degree that can allow us to be where we want to be with who we want to be with. And when you are where you want to be and you are with people who want to be with you, that's where the magic happens, baby. For real, baby. I know I'm sounding like Jim Jones right now, but I think that that's true. But of course, the thing that makes me not Jim Jones is I don't say the answer to this is follow me to Guyana. The answer to this is to be continued. Like that is the end. Like one of the things I've been trying to drive at, one of the things that's made me hesitate to like write stuff down is I've had a hard time sort of getting to a conclusion that felt meaningful, that felt like it wasn't just passing the buck. Uh, and I feel like just that notion of, you know, importing, import, imparting the idea of like what is built in social spaces, which includes people's uh, places of work by definition, because that is the engine of their alienation, whether they have a job or not. And of course, the brutal horror of this is, as someone has pointed out, is we're all fucking stuck inside a pandemic. We can't even be in with our fucking family members. This is a nightmare. And yeah, it's terrible. This is as bad as it gets in terms of just having all of the social forces like fucking dominoes just pushing against any human connection. And so it really is. It's, it's boats against the fucking current, but you've got you to gotta do it anyway. You got to do it anyway. Sucks. There's no alternative is the thing. We can't, the thing that like brought me to the point of feeling like I needed to just like rebuild my mental engine is just the recognition that I cannot think myself out of this in any way, in any way that will be satisfying to me spiritually. And if I can't, then I have to find some other place to do that. Because that's where I'm being like, that is the engine driving me towards peace. And I need to, instead of ignoring it, I need to engage with it. And, and the pseudo-spectacle of politics allows you to ignore it, allows you to find a pleasure principle closer to you than any abstract notion of a greater good that you're operating off of, because there will be no emotion behind it. It will be dry. It will, it will be some sort of uh, symbolic logic. And that will never transcend your lived feeling and your desire for pleasure and your desire to avoid pain. Iron and salt debates. Oh, that's intriguing. I don't think I've heard of that. Is this having to do with Warhammer? Oh, yes. Uh, I don't really know anything about ancient China. I should, though. I mean, if they're the future, i got to find out more about the past. Half of the chat is trolling the other half. That doesn't seem like healthy behavior, but it's okay. This isn't either. Me doing this isn't healthy behavior. None of it's healthy behavior. My God. I don't want to read Heidegger. That sounds boring. I feel like I just kind of get the gist of it. Isn't that true with all those philosophical concepts? You kind of just get the gist of them. In terms of like your day-to-day -day reasoning, you read the books. I've read some of these books, man. I, folks, I've read the books. 
the, like, the texture of the argument doesn't hold you beyond the reading of it. You end up just with like these placeholders. Unless you're gonna, every time you're engaged with the issue, stop and reread it, you're not gonna do that. So what you're really operating off of is the echo. Everyone's operating off of just this like echo-located, uh, uh, socially distorted version of a thing they remember reading. The impact of a piece of reading, a piece of uh, work on us is the degree to which having read it changes us in our daily behaviors and patterns and outlook in a repeatable way, in a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop. As an engine, as an engine of, 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 uh, of presence, of mindfulness, as awful as that word is, as, as, and as cheapened by capitalism as it has become, as all concepts are. Like the thing is, is all the ideas we talk, all the words we say, you know, like when we talk about religion and politics, when we talk about values, we talk about things like socialism or Christianity. These things only have mean. These has, these things have a symbolic meaning and they have an emotional meaning. And the more socially attenuated your existence is, the less your the meaning of like the symbols you use is grounded in an experiential a, an experiential communion with other people the more they are merely symbolically or logically convincing. Which means that when you get into a conflict between resolving a question towards answering it or resolving a question and therefore having to maybe do something you don't want to do and just keep having it because that's more fun even, and it's filling up the same psychic slot in your head towards political action and political activism and political self-fulfillment, you're going to pick that. And that includes me. That's why I made a fucking podcast. Because it was easier and it was more fun. And it will always be more fun and easy to post. And the sacrifice has to be, has to come not from a logical proposition that you pose yourself. It has to come from a place of, dare I say it, love. Where the love is transcendent of your individual uh, sense of consciousness. Where your ego has been reduced in your calculation of value. That's the John Brown spirit I'm talking about. Where... You are, it was not the violence that he carried out that mattered, really. That was a tactic. What mattered was that he was willing to sacrifice himself with actual efficacy in a way that others weren't. Like, um, I've said this before, but John Brown was the synthesis of the two strains of anti-slavery uh, politics that emerged in the antebellum uh, American North. You had abolitionism middle-class phenomenon centered in cities like Boston of doily, bored, rich people who saw slavery as a moral horror which boiled down to, boiled down to, because they're still participating in the system and they don't really challenge its ability it, it, in any meaningful way because they don't operate from any awareness that, or desire to, to abolish class anyway. Uh, that boils down to impolite, impoliteness. It's a moral horror, but but it's because it's, it's gross. I'm not saying the people, these people weren't good. I'm not saying that they didn't operate out of pure hearts. But like their pure hearts were wrapped around a definition of good, of morality, that was desacralized by the experience of being a middle-class urban, urbanite. And it was replaced with this abhorrence in manners. Now in the, in the, in, in the butternut north and in the urban tenements of the, of the Irish mostly Irish urban rabble, 
there was, and although less with them because they were clients of the Democratic Party, the, the non-Irish uh, urban workers, the non-Catholics, the non-Tammanyized ones, uh, who were, like, there were plenty of mechanics who were, who were anti-slavery, who were free soil. And then, of course, the, the, almost the whole of the yeomanry uh, across the whole uh, northern tier were eventually, as the issue became more prominent, more committed to anti-slavery because they saw it as a material, inter uh, uh, a material threat to their way of life. A competition, a labor competition in which they were at a disadvantage and which would lead them or their children to end up in a situation where they would, of course, have to either be an master or slave and being a smallholder with no capital, likely to become a fucking slave. And what this meant was that these two movements, they had different approaches to the question of opposing slavery. Uh, the abolitionists had a general theory of moral suasion. Like, that was the Garrisonian school. Proselytize the awfulness of slavery, and eventually people will realize how horrible it is because of the, the power of our oratory, and it will make them stop doing it. And of course they thought that, and they thought it deeply. But what was underneath even their understanding is that the real reason they, didn't, they thought that is because they didn't want to get their hands dirty. They lived nice lives. They did not feel precarious. They did not feel threatened by slavery. They did not feel the daily pain of alienation of being a fucking backbreaking yeoman trying to you know, uh, uh, like pay off a, a mortgage to some fucking uh, bank out east uh, or, or a toiling uh, urban mechanic. They had real problems to worry about. So the abstract pain of somebody else wasn't any more real to them than it was to the northern uh, abolitionist. And so their anti-slavery was basically just vote Whig and then over time vote Republican. Like vote for yourself. Just like, I don't want, yeah, 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 I'm not going to do that. But if there's a choice, more slavery, less slavery, I'm going to vote less slavery. Let me else know what else would happen. Then, of course, the, the South says, oh, yeah, no, we're going to get rid of the Union. And they're like, oh, I guess we got to throw hands. And out of that, out of the war, anti-slavery sentiment became real because the bloodshed and the experience of it actually made it real. But before that, it wasn't there. What consecrated that fucking, what catalyzed that opposition to slavery, which was attenuated because it was divided in a way that the Southern pro-slavery aristocracy was completely undivided, was John Brown using the real pain. I mean, this guy was miserable. He was, he, he, he made attempts at being a, 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 a speculator, like a lot of people did in the Ohio, uh, the, the, um, the Ohio River Valley, I believe, or the, the Western Reserve. Uh, and he speculated on land, but he uh, was ruined by the 1930, 1836 panic. Thank you, Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Ruin, more like it. And he, uh, was broke the rest of his life. He was constantly hounded by debtors. Hounded by debtors. He was in court all the time. He went to fucking England on a cockamamie scheme to manipulate the wool market and ended up eating shit and owing everybody money. He was miser He was always uh, on someone else's tender hook. He was as close to the thing, even though he like had his own property and he had farms that he worked, either like gifted to him by Garrett Smith or owned outright before they were taken from him. Uh, he was working for other people, even in that capacity. Uh, he and he was always tenuous. But his, uh, and so he had the rough manner and the, and the willingness to take questions to the extremity posed by his own suffering. He also lost, 
he lost 11 of his 20 children, I believe, in childhood or, or, or dying before him, including a number of them who were killed in his war against slavery, either with him at Harpers Ferry beforehand in Kansas. Fred, for example. He was, it was like real human, like real experience consecrated his pain and he expressed it towards an institution that was offensive to the human spirit at a level that only he really could sense because of the wealth of his, the depth of his pain and his connection of that pain to the pain of others. That spiritualized understanding that the swells in Boston said they had mouthed, but for most part, at the end of the day, didn't really believe. Because remember, these guys weren't really Christians for the most part. They were Unitarians by this point. They were all like Emersonian transcendentalists. They were, their, their faith was weak tea. They did believe in the brotherhood of man, but they were ideas, as they are to us now. Like, these were our pre predecessors. Uh, and, uh, like, this is the favored class. This is the buffeted, costed, favored, like, middle strata class that's, like, born, born up through uh, the tides of history until now, at which point the, the thing is capsizing. But on, like, on the bedrock was their, their, their wanting to preserve their comfortable position. Brown had no comfortable position, so his moral horror at slavery was, and his religious horror at slavery was a live wire. It was grounded to a well of real pain that was connected to him and his family and his, the people he loved the most. And that drove him to break a stalemate that was always being settled on the side of slavery because the slavers wanted it more. They were on the precipice of winning uh, the, the, the Kansas battle because they wanted it more. Because they had a unified working class that as whole, and, a, and a social order that did away with any of the niceties surrounding this as an issue. Either by, because it's, there is no uh, social opposition to it, at least in wherever planter economies were hegemonic, they were hegemonic in the creation of the entire social order around them. And the alienation of the smallholder uh, of the South, the white smallholder of the South, was as ideologically uh, ensnared as it was in the North, just towards the planter position. And there was no real opposition. Like, union, uh, like Southern Unionism didn't even really like cohere until very late in the sectional crisis because it didn't seem like it was really going to happen until that point. And John Brown was the one, one Northerner who was willing to put the fucking bet down and say, I am willing to sacrifice this. This might not work because the reason the North kept backing down is because the only way to win was to risk. And why risk? Because nobody's really that concerned. Even the nor northern opposition to slavery in, uh, in like, you know, the, the non-middle class sphere uh, was, um, was firming up. But, you know, you could also let things go. John Brown wasn't going to let anything go. And the violence all flowed from that. And you can question the tactical necessity of it, but you cannot question the morality. It's more moral than anything any of us have ever done. And I think even tactically, you, you got to say it worked. You know, they hang him in 1859. Within two years, the guy who sentenced him to hang was in a federal jail after having been uh, taken off the uh, CSS Trent, trying to go to negotiate with the British. The world can turn upside down, but you're not going to live to see it. And the, or 
in realistic terms, because we're not in that moment, we're not in that apocalyptic moment. We're at the very, we're at a basic level of like building even, you know, like the, the, the rudiments of a social consciousness to, to operate out of. Uh, so there's no need for that kind of thing. There does no need to be a willingness to sacrifice in terms of just letting go of some passability for personal selfish pleasure, which is always going to be more, more real. And I'm, I'm as implicated by this as anyone. And I hope that I can find a, a place to put that energy and feel like I'm doing something with it. But yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not blaming anybody for not doing it. And certainly not now when we are literally all being told to, unless you're being compelled by the market to run around like a fucking uh, gerbil in a habit trail, delivering things to people uh, or, or risking your life staffing grocery stores and stuff, you got to stay home. So nobody has any position to do anything other than just be compelled either to ignore things by, by distracting oneself or just being distracted by the brutal reality of having to, you know, work 15-hour shifts or whatever the fuck people have to do now. Um. And the degree to which we can distract ourselves is the degree to which we're not going to feel that enough to push out of ourselves. And that's why logging off is the first and most important step. All comes back to this, as banal as it is. It's like the hope is that with each circuit, like you intensify the feeling around the thought so that, that when you think it, you think it more powerfully than you thought it before. You're amplifying. You're like charging it with psychic energy. You're, you're, you're ensorceling it. You're giving the word or the phrase an actual like psychic energy and that happens through repeated like reaffirmations of the truth of it and the necessity for it and that's what i think i'm doing with these i hope it's having some echoing effect on those who listen but i don't know obviously all of my reasonings related to my life are filtered through the same thing and as much as i say that i'm trying to build a sense of love that goes beyond myself i am certainly not there i certainly struggle with the desire to just listen to the fully struck. I mean, I went a long time operating on autopilot that way. And so I'm still, I'm, I'm bucking a lot of programming. And so all my reasoning this way might very well be like, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Right now you really can't do anything. But I got to say right now, I really don't know what I can do. Like, as in there's a virus going. But one of these days, this thing's going to stop. And I hope that the people, we have used this time wisely, is I guess what I would say is that we have used this time, if we have it, and a lot of people don't, and that's terrible. But if you have it, use it wisely. Now, whatever that means cannot be prescribed. Because at that point, you're just operating off of some flimsy, rickety, bullshit, ideological construct that's really just designed to like, improve your take position in the cloutosphere. It's not based on anything more than just motivated reasoning and selfishness. But if anybody, I mean, I have not used my time. I've used my time better than I could have in the worst case. I certainly know it hasn't been as good, but that's okay. It's finding a, it's just knowing that you're trying. It's knowing what you're trying. It's just not letting it run on autopilot because that's the danger. It just sucks time away from you. And that, that time doesn't just go away. That time is alienated. And that, time, that alienation has to be recouped somewhere. That pain has to be vented somewhere. And the more you're there, the more you're going to want to stay there to keep venting it because that's the only other way you can do it.
And if you are working, use the time at work wisely. Once again, what that means, you're there, I'm not there. I couldn't fucking tell you. Why would I propose? My God, what a presumptuous asshole I would have to be to make any presumption. Just wisely, just being aware, mindful. Yes, that'll be $5.99. Get it on a fucking mug. I know, this is all commodified fucking pablum. I know. Then this is David Foster Wallace style uh, 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 faux self-deprecation as a rhetorical turn. Yes. What about it? Did it make sense? Because the standpoint at the end of the day cannot be attained. Anyone interacting with any text cannot attain the standpoint of the person who, who, who expressed it, which means they'll never be able to weigh their heart against a feather as they go into Anubis's lair. So yeah, it's a, it's a very tough place to find yourself at any end of this. It's very alienating. I mean, it's literally alienating. It's accelerating alienation. It's just, it's because I really do feel like every, like not just, talk about labor. I feel like every hour spent online as a concept, like when I say online, I mean social media. I mean uh, not all cases of gaming or, uh, or uh, watching films, but most of them. Definitely all uses of it for pornography. None of this is sin. None of this is evil. All of this is necessary. But that amount of time that can be defended to it is so elastic. There's so much stretch in those fucking genes that if you just let it go long enough, you will find yourself lost. And I have. I've been lost doing that basically my whole life and I, I agree I look back and I'm like man so many places I made mistakes that so many what, where could I have been if I'd done X, Y, or Z differently but the thing that I remind myself is that I'm only here because all that happened and I have no idea what the fuck could have occurred what kind of catastrophes could have intervened how I would have responded to, to, the, to the stochastic uh, terror of life in a body And all that time is alienated and it, it makes us unhappy because it's not what we want to be doing. And like I'm saying, that's alienation is at the base. You're not doing what you want to be doing. And of course, what is want? But I think that want is so deformed that even doing what you think you want to be doing is not doing what you want to be doing, if that makes sense. And I think, come on, that makes sense, right? Because what you want to be doing is just programming. It's just... It's just... The options presented to you, here's the one you want. It's like when they gave the, uh, they gave the different magazine covers to Eric Trump, and he got to pick one. That's what his job at the Trump News Magazine. And they go, and we really like this one, and they put it towards him, and he goes, that's the one. And then that is what we want. I was like, yeah, we want it. We want it. No one's, I'm not going to deny anybody's lived experience, but we want it as consolation. We want it as soporific. We want it as balm for an underlying injury, which is unaddressed. And going unaddressed continues to suppurate and, and fucking weep pus. And that has to be expressed somewhere. And one way it can be is to turn all of those bad feelings into, uh, into 
spectacleized amusement. And in politics, this is where it all comes together, in politics, the infliction of pain. The vicarious infliction of pain on others. People that are responsible for why things are bad. Things are bad, they cannot be changed, because we cannot change them, because we cannot operate out of anything other than self-interest. We are the homo economicus that the fucking Chicago boys made us. We cannot break this programming. And as such, we are doomed. Whose fault is this? And the Trump people say it's to use fucking Jews in your fucking fancy talk. All the guys making us feel bad about just being uh, kings, about making that money. All these nagging little fucking chirpers. Chirpy chirping. Your fault. You, got, you threw off our fucking aim. We were vibing and you fucked it up. Of course, the, democratic, the broad democratic response is, no, it's, ra- it's you racist, misogynist, male, white male demons. You Yakubian monsters. You are the ones who poisoned the fucking uh, uh, garden. Not Eve. And so we will array our politics around using this machinery of state that is dishing out the misery of neoliberalism at an accelerating rate. It's going to try to direct it towards our enemies. That will be the sum of politics until it is interrupted from below and from without and from within as people like opt out and burst away from this thing. I have not read Corey Robbins' book on Clarence Thomas. I have to say, I am a big fan of Corey Robbins, just because someone mentioned him. Uh, I think one of the very few legacy left establishment media people who understood the Trump uh, era at all. They, just people seem to just like, people who have a real grasp of every moment until that, just like his, his election short circuit their brain. Rick Perlstein is an example of this. His books are great. Reagan Land's fantastic. He fucking put in, oh, you know what he did? He got that Greg Gumbo. He got that culture. Oh, he got that culture over there. Oh, you know that culture's good. Oh, yeah, he got that list of all them uh, Book of the Month Club main selections there. Oh, you're going to slap your mama. That's some good stuff right there. Oh, what's that? Oh, yeah. But then over here, he's got them politics. Oh, yeah, you got that Nixon in there. You got that Reagan. Oh, yeah, you got that. Those guys at those conventions causing all that ruckus. Oh, that's good. But what's this? He gonna bring some political economy in there. Oh my God, this dude is off the chain. Slap your mama. But he just like, even though he wrote stuff like reading up to Trump about like, yeah, this is a, this thing's a whole giant marketing level marketing scheme and it's a bunch of people ripping each other off. And that's the whole core of it. Trump shows up and it's just like, Broop! he fritzed out. Like he was fretting about like how we were gonna have war in the streets on election day. It's like, do you not get that this whole thing is transactional? This thing is too transactional to allow for an ideological contest. These guys are all just selling each other timeshares. He just couldn't apply it because he was too enthralled to the drama of the norm breaking. He was too invested with the norms. Corey Robbins seems like he was like, yeah, no, I get this. Because like, obviously, uh, uh, reactionary mind is on point, I think, largely. There's stuff you might quibble with, but I think his general, his, his general turn of it is very accurate. And then his... His diagnosis of Trump uh, has been very good. And like his main emphasis has been that like Trump as policymaker is basically powerless and was the entire presidency. And that was always true. And if he is policymaker is powerless, then all the questions about him being a fascist and his agenda 
uh. are essentially ornamental because even if he was, he couldn't do anything about it. And that, I think, that, that like first principle for him, I think it allowed him to not get carried away with a lot of nonsense that got other people carried away because they didn't have that grounding of, like, yeah, no, these guys are, these guys are all fucking scamming each other. Uh, and, and his whole thing about like seeing Trump as a disjunctive president the way that like Carter was uh, and predicting very early on that he wouldn't get reelected uh, that, I think, f sort of fell apart towards the end of the term with the COVID and everything and Biden getting the nomination. I think that, like, a lot of that was predicated on the assumption that Bernie would emerge as, like, a counter, as, like, a, as a Reagan-style antithesis, like a new a nemesis to the current system, like a nemesis to, to like, the degraded conservative, uh, decadent conservative uh, ruling class. But then that didn't emerge. We got Biden instead. Uh, and so I think that the grounds, the grounds are febrile now for something, something more sulfurous than that to emerge. But it's not here yet, and I appreciate that he doesn't go crazy uh, trying to ring the damn bell all the time just because everyone's got a goddamn uh, soccer on their neck and they're jacking off to this stuff. There's an autoerotic quality to all speculations of purges and coups happening and, and then stealing the election. Because if they stole the election... That means that, because you say, well, what's going to stop them? Okay, take that logic seriously. Why are you scared? Why are you worried? What are you fretting about? You literally are describing a fait accompli to the point of metaphysical certainty. So what are you actually scared of? I would submit that you are not really scared of anything. You're scared the way that somebody in a movie theater is scared watching The Blair Witch Project. That is what I would say. And of course, people get mad at you because they'll say that you're denying their lived experience. And that is one of the mystifying horrors of, of this current moment, this cultural turn, this, this like autoimmune system kick in as capitalism gets more and more extractive and, and the superstructure has to find new and in, in, um, impressive ways to explain it away. Your lived experience doesn't really mean anything because it is not yours. You are a constitutive of an entire matrix of ideological formation that tear apart your very idea of ever even imagining yourself a unified being that can express a desire or have a point of view. Only through the, the accumulation of these things, lived experience, at the, at, the, at the population level, can there be grasped any sort of uh, uh, intelligible pattern? You filter out all the bullshit. You filter out the bullshit, and that is what comes from mass organizing, which, you know, that's easy to say, but it's still the only thing we're going to get. And a lot of people say, a lot of arguments online really boil down to, like, how do we get that mass movement? And it's like, yeah, you can't plan your way there because these mechanisms are broken. But if it emerges, like I said, that's, gonna, that's how it's going to emerge. We are all, in fact, contradictions that are resolving ourselves. And that's why you're never sitting still. And all that time online is not just, you're, it's, like, it's like you're doing a fucking, you're, you're solving a Bitcoin. You're, you're, you're mining Bitcoin in there. You're, you're mining like social Bitcoin. You're getting, your, you're getting your little fragment of clout that you can exchange. I'm doing it too, and I'm doing better. I'm, I'm one of the Winklevosses of the social Bitcoin clout. 
But meanwhile, your fucking computer is heating your room and filling the atmosphere with fucking uh, toxic goddamn gas. You're literally cooking the earth to solve Sudokus or hang out in the fucking waiting room, which is what we're doing. We're hanging around in the waiting room of Western civilization. The, or the, waiting for like DOA to get called. But yes, Corey Robin, I like him. Indeed. I would like to read the Clarence Thomas book because I think Clarence Thomas does make sense. Like people think Clarence, people have a very hard time analyzing him. And I think that Robin's, from what I've, I've read some articles uh, and excerpts, I, I, I broadly get him as saying like, Clarence Thomas is a black nationalist. Clarence Thomas is operating off of coherent political objectives and theories that arise from an acceptance of a, a racial pessimism an acceptance that there can be no uh, non uh, multiracial democracy. Like, he believes that. He believes like Afro pessimism. But he also believes a lot of other stuff, and built up together, it turns into his political ideology. His uh, his political ideology expressed through his uh, his uh, his judicial decisions and votes. But yeah, I realize I'm just Howard Beale now, yelling, turn it off, right before the commercial break. And then they bring out uh, Josie the fucking psychic, and we do Vox Populi. And then I get murdered by, uh, by epic Maoist Zoomers. I mean, we could literally just do a remake with my life, if that's how it ends. But honestly, anything that does end it would probably be like similarly fitting and uh, absurd. Like, the thing about that, that network shit is that you got to take it all the way. And if you take it all the way, all the way, to, like, no, all of this is entertainment. Like, everything that doesn't directly, uh, everything that doesn't directly connect to you, your sustenance as a person, your, your tearing from the earth's bounty your ability to sustain yourself and your family members. Everything that isn't that, in this social order, at the end point of the conveyor belt of the global economy, the big open mouth at the end of the thing, Homer Simpson eating the fucking uh, uh, hot, uh, eating the fucking donuts in hell, that means it's all just pleasure because we have a baseline uh, uh, prote protection from the worst of full immiseration and you say yeah but like there are so many people in this country who that's not true of correct but they aren't part of the we they're not part of our body politic in the way that we conceive of it they're not participating in it because they have been let go because the way we normalize is by when horror happens we localize we cut it off and we just create a new class of people who are no longer within the continuum 
of our moral consideration. Not at the same level. Even if we feel for them, we feel for them at an abstraction, at a distance that we don't feel for people who are closer to us in a sense of citizenship. And that's because the more we feel their pain, the more we can't distract ourselves. So we have to dampen it. We're not doing it on purpose. It's our spiritual sense, our, our antenna are dampened out of self-protection. Because if we didn't, if we could feel it, if we could feel the real declination of people, just the people around you in a city, the people around you in a town, the people that make up the country that you live in, the people who make up the world you live in, you would not be able to indulge in the compensatory spectacle observation and engagement that we are all doing. Okay, I feel like this was a breakthrough. I feel like this was a good one. I got real, real down low here. Got to the gritty. I realize, though, a lot of people are going to say, you sound crazy. I realize that now. And I know people tell me, don't worry about it. But I'll tell you right now, I'm not worried about it. I know you got to do this sometimes. You got to find the extension of your ability to express things in symbols and other people's ability to figure out what you mean. Like, you need to know if you're translatable, if you're operating at a level of translation. And if you're not, you got to slow down. And so I, I welcome the feedback, certainly. All right, guys. Peace.